Welcome to week three of this important series FAQ. Craig, we're dealing with some sensitive issues this week. We are. Allie, we're going to talk about social drinking and then we are going to talk about masturbation. And so if the parents are worried about kids being in church, now's a good time to take them to live kids or at church online. If you want to take them out of the room right now, you're welcome to do so. You're also working on a really exciting series for next week called Forgotten Virtues. Yes, I'm so excited. We're going to talk about Forgotten Virtues. We're going to look at honor. We're going to talk about purity, integrity, loyalty, and gratitude. Some important virtues that have been forgotten, and we're going to bring them back into our lives. Take it away with week three of FAQ. Buckle up your seat belts. We are in the final week of FAQ, Frequently Asked Questions. If you're new with us, this is very, very different. I want to welcome all of our life churches, our great people at all of our different locations, all of our network churches, and those of you gathering at our online community, Church Online from all over the world. Uh, we are so glad you're here today. We are talking about some very mature themes. So if you have kids that you're worried about hearing some things that might be uh, more for those who are older, uh, please run, don't walk, take them out immediately, okay? Run, don't walk, take them out immediately. Let me give you the ground rules for FAQ. I believe wholeheartedly that the Bible is the Word of God. You've asked a lot of questions. If the Bible speaks directly to your question, I will take a stand and will not waver at all. There are many questions that you'll ask that the Bible doesn't speak directly to, and so I may look for principles to apply to answer your questions whenever I do so. I'll tell you I'm doing so. There are other times I may give you my opinion. Because the Bible is not always clear, we don't have to agree on everything, but we do have to be nice and love one another. Those are the ground rules. If you agree, could you shout it down? I agree. Let's dive in and deal with a very important and commonly asked question. Interestingly enough, everyone who asked this remained anonymous. A lot of people wanted to know, what does the Bible say about masturbation? If you're taking notes, there are two different verses. The first verse is quoted by those who believe masturbation is a sin. It is Genesis 3.3, and the Bible says, you must not touch it or you will die. That's funnier than that. I don't know where you live, but that's just funny. If you're going to be prude, you better just leave on now. Just walk on out of here because that's just funny. There's another verse, though, for those that really don't think it's a sin, and they'll quote Ecclesiastes 9.10. The Bible says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Did I just say that in church? Did I just say that in church? Go ahead and email me. Please do. Craig at I don't give a rip.com. Send your emails right there. Let's go ahead and be a little bit more serious. If I can't make a little joke about this, we just can't talk about it. It's just the law. You have to make a joke about this. Let's get over the jokes and talk seriously. What does the Bible say about masturbation? The answer is it doesn't say anything. The Bible never speaks directly to this topic, and so we're going to look for principles to apply. Let me just answer from a life perspective what a lot of people would say. Truthfully, this is an easy act for people to rationalize 
or justify. They'll say, well, what I'm doing is not hurting anyone. What's the big deal? If I'm not married, hey, this helps me from doing other things that are worse. If I am married and my spouse isn't meeting my needs, this is just kind of how I get by. And a lot of guys will say, besides, everybody does it. Not everybody does, but guys who do think everybody does, just saying, okay? There are those who will say this is not a sin, and they will say the Bible is strangely silent on this subject. And admittedly, the Bible is silent, and the Bible is not shy at all when it comes to sexual issues. So it is a bit strange that the Bible addresses all these other sexual things and not masturbation. They'll often say that masturbation gives you an appropriate form of physical release that will keep you from being involved in more dangerous sexual temptations. People will often say, well, as long as you don't have any lustful thoughts, then it's really not a sin. On the other hand, there are those people who say that this is a sin. They'll often quote Genesis 38, where a guy named Onan spilled his seed on the ground. God killed him. They said, see, if you do that, you'll die, told you. And truthfully, that is not addressing masturbation. This was a guy who was selfishly using Tamar, um, and God was not happy about that. What does the Bible say? Some principles that apply. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3, the Bible says, among you there must not even be a what? Everybody, all of our churches among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity. From my perspective, it's hard to see this act without a hint of sexual impurity because even if you argue the act is not a sin, what leads up to it is often unquestionably sinful. Masturbation is often accompanied by pornography, lustful thoughts, fantasy, and such. From my perspective, it's hard to see this act as not having at least a hint of immorality. Therefore, it is my opinion that it is sinful. 1 Corinthians 10, 31 says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Truthfully, it's hard for me to see doing that for the glory of God. If we take a step back from this very challenging subject, let me give you three bigger picture thoughts that I think are really important. If you just want to jot this down, the first thing is the battle for purity long before a physical act, it starts with the eyes and with the mind. The battle for purity starts with the eyes and the mind. I like what Job said in chapter 31, verse 1. He said, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a girl. Before a physical act, there's usually a look or a thought, and so we make a covenant. I will not look lustfully at another person. Paul told the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 10, 5, that we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. If there's a runaway, sinful, lustful thought, we grab it, we replace it with the Word of God, with something excellent, lovely, pure, or admirable. We think about things that would glorify God. The battle for purity starts with the eyes and the mind. Second thing is, if something causes you to sin, remove it. Jesus taught this very clearly in Matthew 5, 28 through 30. He said, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Applying this verse to masturbation, if this is a problem for you, next week there should be a lot of one-arm cyclopses <laughs> at Life Church. Just doing what Jesus said. You know, so, <laughs> sorry. Je Jesus was not being literal. 
He was basically saying that there's something that is going to cause you to fall into temptation, avoid it at all costs. If going to the gym, you end up lusting all the time, work out at home. If your cable TV is causing you to lust and you're surfing all the time, cut your cable TV. If you can't get on the internet without being drawn into looking at pornography, get filters or blocks. Whatever you need to do to remove the temptation that would lead you into sin, do it. The third thing is, and this is so important, and I want to drive this home, that there is a state of purity that many people do not believe is possible. There is a state of purity that many do not believe is possible because let's be honest, we are bombarded with lustful images everywhere in our culture. But if you will take the thoughts captive, if you will let God's word renew your mind, if you will consistently train your eyes to bounce, over time, God can renew your mind and your heart to a state of purity that many people do not even believe is possible. The power of God can do more to purify you over time if you'll truly surrender to him. So to summarize, if you do compromise sexually in any way, maybe you lose your virginity and then you're like, oh, I did that, might as well just go for it now. Or you do something and you think, well, I did this, well, now I might as well just keep on going. Just because you mess up, it's not the end of the world. Don't go kill yourself because you fell into sexual temptation. It is forgivable, but just because you messed up, do not surrender in the battle for purity. Keep on fighting. Just because the world is vile and impure does not mean that the people of God have to be. There is a state of purity greater than you could ever imagine. That's what I think about masturbation, and I just said it in church to all of you who are looking at me with your eyes. That's tough to talk about. I mean, it is like, it is, it, 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 so if you could just give me a second to recover. I mean, this is a tough series. You guys have no idea. I, I need a drink, just a little, just to kind of, just a little drink. So I need a, a drink. I was thinking of water. I don't even know what a natural light is. So it's obviously a beer. How many of you like beer? How many like beer? Raise your hands. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's kind of nasty. So it's more of an acquired taste. If you drink enough of it, you like it. Kind of like urine. If you drink a lot of urine, it kind of grows on you. Right? It's just, you know. What do you think? How many of you say, Pastor Craig, man of God, you should not drink that beer from the platform here? How many say, don't drink it? Don't drink it. Raise it. All of our, I want everybody participating. No wusses allowed. Don't drink it. Don't drink it. Don't drink it. Don't you dare drink it. Leave your hands up because you'd never drank in your life. You don't drink. Leave them up. But don't put them back down. <laughs> Those of you say, we love you, Pastor. You've been working really hard. You deserve a drink. Lift them up. Lift them up. Lift them up. <laughs> you know, what's funny is uh, different parts of the world, there's really different standards in Christian circles. If I go to some pastor's conferences and if I even took a sip, they would call me a heretic and take me out to stone me behind the church building. Other parts of the world, quite honestly, if I decline and say no thank you with a glass of wine over the meal or a, a beer with, in some parts of the world, they what's wrong with you? I mean, well, that's no big deal at all. So culture doesn't determine what is right or wrong. What does the Bible say? Let's take a look. So what does the Bible say about drinking alcohol? The first thing that we have to acknowledge is that anytime you drink and get drunk, it is a sin. The Bible says, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Not only is getting drunk 
always a sin, but what happens after you get drunk often leads to more sins. Getting drunk is dangerous, it is wrong, and it is a sin. On the other hand, we have to acknowledge that if you drink and you do not get drunk, that's not a sin. Remember, Jesus changed water into wine. The Bible also shows Paul telling Timothy, drink a little wine to help out with your frequent stomach problems. And so if you drink a margarita with your Mexican food or a glass of wine with your meal or have a beer once every now and then, it's not a sin. The bigger question we have to ask ourselves is, drinking alcohol really beneficial? Paul said, although everything is permissible, not everything is beneficial. The big question you have to ask, is drinking alcohol beneficial? From my perspective, here's what could have happened at a recent campus pastor's meeting. These are great times. I love these guys. I think I'll get a drink. Let's see, what do we have here? Is that a beer? Maybe just one. Beer party! Nah, baby, this is just for grown-ups. I'm sorry, girl, you can't. Hey, how's it going? Hello. Hey, we got a, a call about a loud party out here. Oh. Well, those guys seem to be having a pretty good time. Hey, what the? Get out of the way. Albany, hey, you better calm down, Albany. See, look, man, it's already going. No, 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 no. Sorry, sorry. Just stay back or you're going to jail. So when did it go wrong at this campus pastor gathering? Obviously when someone got arrested. Most likely when a fight broke out. Probably when a grown-up sent a mixed message to a child. The big question is, could it all have been avoided if someone had not opened up the very first drink? So when would drinking alcohol go wrong for you? Maybe when you go home with someone who's not your spouse, get someone pregnant when you didn't plan to, get a sexually transmitted disease. Maybe when you wrap your car around a tree or lose the respect of your kids. It could be when you lose your marriage because you're an alcoholic. Although everything is permissible, it's obvious that everything is not beneficial. You have to ask yourself the question, is drinking alcohol right for you? Well, I'd like to say that none of the pastors got hurt in the making of that video, but the six foot 11 guy, Pastor Jay, 
uh, the pastor at Life Church Owasso. Uh, he played pro basketball when the police officer threw him down. He actually cut his head open, had to go to the emergency room. He is okay, but I want you to know he is now a hero and a legend in pastor's circles around the country. So that's just kind of where it is. We did have uh, one of our network pastors ask this question via Skype. Hi, Craig. I'm Arnold Gamboa from Life Church Makati here in the Philippines. We're part of the Life Church TV network and we're so blessed by um, your leadership and your generosity. Your love for the church has been creating a huge impact in the lives of people. For our FAQ series, I have a question about horoscope. You see, here in the Philippines, this is, a, this is very popular. You can see this in major newspapers and even in major early morning TV shows. So, is it okay for a Christian to read horoscope? Pastor Arnold, we love you and your church. It's an honor to partner with you. And you're asking a good question. Is it okay for Christians to read their horoscopes? Is it kind of just like entertainment, like no big deal when you're a kid, you get the magic eight ball out, magic eight ball, magic eight ball. Will she go to the dance with me if I ask her? No way. You know, uh, is it like, uh, you know, a, a um, fortune cookie that, you know, you're looking at for fun and don't really take seriously? Is it real? Is it, you know, if you're a Sagittarius and, your daily horoscope says you're going to meet someone special today. Do you need to be watching all day long because this could be the day you meet your two? You know, is it uh, uh, is it dangerous? Is it um, something that's the first step to Satanism? And a week later, you're going to be sacrificing chickens on your front lawn. What what should you believe uh, about horoscopes? The big danger, in my opinion, is that so many people are putting their faith in something besides the one true God. And we'll let the Bible speak because it does speak very clearly to this question. Isaiah 47 verses 13 through 15 says, let your astrologers come forward, those stargazers who make predictions month by month. Surely they are like stubble. The fire will burn them up and each of them goes on in his error. I mean here, this is written centuries ago and yet very much applies to what's going on today. You may say, well, what about, you know, Ouija boards and seances and just casting spells and ghost hunting and such? We have to remember that the spirit world is very, very real. So many examples in Scripture. In fact, you can read in Acts 16 when there was a young slave girl who was basically doing fortune telling. She was predicting the future, and Paul came along and cast a demon out of her as she was doing this for money because she was demon-possessed. The spirit world is very real, and the demonic things are not something to mess with. The Bible says this in Deuteronomy 18, verses 10 through 12. Let no one be found among you who practices divination or sorcery, interprets omens, engages in witchcraft, or casts spells, or is a medium, or a spiritist, or who consults the dead. Anyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord. The Bible speaks clearly. I would not mess around with this kind of stuff at all. Allie Meyer, again this week, put me on the hot seat. Welcome to round three of the hot seat. Craig, are you ready? I'm ready. Let's play. All right, let's start with a big question. Todd from Facebook wants to know, does the Bible mention dinosaurs? A lot of debate on this subject. Those who believe in a young earth, they often say the Bible does mention dinosaurs. I'll give you some examples. Uh, there's a Hebrew word, the word tanian, 
It's translated sea monster, dragon, or serpent, as some type of a giant reptile. It's mentioned 28 times in the Old Testament. There's a couple other words as well. In Job 40, there's a creature called the behemoth. And in Psalm 104 and Isaiah 27, there's a creature called the Leviathan. If you want to research more about dinosaurs in the Bible, I suggest you Google creation science. We have a question now from South Tulsa from Sharon. Actually, a few questions here dealing with money. Sharon wants to know, why do you teach the tithe when she says it's not mentioned in the New Testament? A lot of people think the tithe isn't mentioned in the New Testament. It is mentioned. In fact, Jesus talked about it. Matthew 23, 23, he said, for you're careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore the more important aspects of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. Then Jesus himself says you should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. The tithe is biblical, Old Testament, and new. A few specifics here. Trevor from a network church in Canada wants to know, should I tithe off my inheritance? Absolutely. That's an increase, and you return 10% to the Lord. Caitlin in Wellington, Florida wants to know, should I tithe off my student loans? No, that's a loan. You do not tithe off your loans. Okay. Wife in Oklahoma City wants to know, my husband and I were debating if we should tithe our income before taxes are removed or after taxes are removed. Gross and net. Uh, the Bible says that we bring our first fruits to the Lord. I believe that we tithe before taxes. This wasn't even an issue before the 16th Amendment back in 1913 when the government could now remove income taxes. For hundreds of years, people tithe before income taxes. I believe we tithe our first and our best and trust God to bless the rest. Jonathan from a network church wants to know, is purgatory a real place? Let's talk about what purgatory is. A lot of our Catholic friends believe in a place called purgatory where the soul goes after one dies to be purged or to be cleansed and prepared for heaven. To be honest, the Bible doesn't mention purgatory anywhere. The Bible does say in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, no mention of purgatory. Hebrews 9, 27 says, just as a man is destined to die once, and after that face the judgment. Purgatory is not a real place. Along the same lines, Amy in our Albany campus wants to know, will Catholics go to heaven? Great question. Catholics who trust in Christ for salvation will go to heaven, just as Baptists who trust in Christ. Catholics or Baptists or people who go to Life Church who trust in religion or their good works and not in Christ will not go to heaven. Okay, now we've got a hot and heavy line of questioning here. A lot of people from a number of campuses want to know what's allowed and what's not allowed in the marriage bedroom. I'm not going to give you specifics here, but answer the question. Great question. I used to answer this alley and say, well, as long as the two of you agreed, then it was probably okay. But a lot of people are agreeing to some unusual things, like we agree to bring our friend in, and so let me just broaden the answer a little bit. Uh, if you want to bring another person in, another couple, that's absolutely and unquestionably wrong all the time. If you want to introduce pornography into your marriage, that's wrong. You're using an outside source or people to arouse you. Again, biblically wrong. If you want to try different positions and different things, read Song of Solomon. It's rather erotic very direct. It seems like there's a lot of freedom. My perspective is as long as you agree alone together, turn the lights off, leave them on, have fun. Let's lighten up. Taylor from Facebook wants to know, I know you've been expecting this one, do pets go to heaven? Should I answer that or not? Yes. Okay, let's, let's do this. You have to. You're on the hot seat. People love their pets. And for some people, pets are like a family member or like their best friend. So I want to answer this with sensitivity. The Bible doesn't answer this directly at all. And so let's talk about what we do know. We know that God made animals. 
We know that God cares for animals. We also know that animals will be in heaven, and the Bible is very specific about that. Isaiah 11:6 shows us that animals will be in heaven. Here's what we also know, Allie. We know that man was made in the image and likeness of God. Animals were not, implying that people have a soul and animals do not have a soul. In order to go to heaven, you have to trust in Christ, which would be hard for an animal without a soul to actually do. If you want to believe that animals go to heaven, I wonder where do you draw the line with your pets? Is it just your cats and your dogs and not your goldfish or your pet tarantula or the turtle that you put in a box that died four days later when you were a little kid? So from my perspective, it does not appear that your pets will go to heaven, although there will be animals there. Since the Bible doesn't specifically answer this question, if you want to believe that Fluffy goes to heaven, more power to you. No cat jokes? That's it? We have four cats living with us right now. Three of them are ours. One is a guest cat that we're taking care of for family members. One of our cats is pregnant, and we don't know who the father is. It tells you more about the morals of cats. It's been a pleasure. Thanks. Thank you. That is very true. There are cats everywhere. Pray for me. <laughs> and if you want free kittens, we'll give them away. The, my, uh, my mom is a... Uh, very active part of the church. I love her so much, and uh, she is protesting me and my stance on pets, and she keeps calling with her biblical defense of why they will be in heaven, and she called today, and she said, she, she, she said, Balaam's donkey, he could talk, and he could call on Jesus to save him. <laughs> let's, uh, let's deal with this question from uh, our, uh, our Fort Worth Pastor Robert Wall. Hey, Live Church. Robert Wall, Fort Worth campus pastor. And on behalf of everyone here on our campus, we just want to give a shout out to you. You know, God has just been doing tremendous things on our campus. We're now running over 800 people. But better than that, many, many, many people are committing their lives to Christ. And one question that just keeps coming up is, Robert, can, can we lose our salvation? So, Craig, the question is, can a person, once they're saved, can they lose their salvation? Pastor Robert, good question, and we love uh, you all, what's going on at, uh, at Life Church Fort Worth. Great, great stuff. And let me just say off the top that there are very sincere, very committed Christians on both sides of this question. There are some who say, uh, no, there's no way. Once you're saved, you're always saved. There are others who are very sincere Christians who disagree and say you can lose your salvation. So I don't believe this is worth dividing over. I, I want to be united around Christ, and so I'll try to give you my perspective. It's a very challenging question. brings up all sorts of debate. All of you who've been around Christians for much time at all, you probably know someone who appeared to be very committed to Christ, and then their life totally changed, and now they don't believe, or they're not living like it at all. I've got a really close pastor friend that I helped get into ministry, uh, helped him start his church. His marriage ended up breaking up. The church let him go, and now there's no evidence at all that he's living according to Scripture. He totally rejects Christ and thinks that I'm a fool and stupid for believing in Christ, and so when I look at him, I have to ask myself, A, 
Uh, is he backslidden? Is he a Christian who's now just fallen away? Was he a Christian that lost his salvation and he's not a Christian anymore? Or was he never really a Christian in the first place? Very complicated, very important question. Those who say once saved, always saved. You can never lose your salvation. They'll say once your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, no one can blot it out. Good argument. John chapter 10, verse 27 and 28, Jesus said, my sheep listen to my voice, I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Jesus said, no one can snatch them out of my hand. Sounds very secure. Ephesians chapter 1, 13 and 14, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a what? Say it aloud, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who deposits, a, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. Sounds very secure, once saved, always saved. This was my theological bias. This is how I've been raised, and this to me is what Scripture points toward, that you're saved by grace, you stay saved by grace. Those who say you can lose your salvation make a fair argument pointing to Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6, which says it's impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age, the Bible says it is impossible if they fall away to be brought back to repentance. They'll often quote Luke chapter 8, verse 13, the parable of the sower. A sower went out to sow some seed. Some fell on the rock. Jesus said those on the rock are those who receive the word with joy when they hear it, but they have no root. He said they believe for a little while, but in the time of testing they fall away. These verses are the reasons why people debate back and forth as it once saved, always saved, or can you lose your salvation? Again, my bias is toward once saved, always saved, but I can't say with absolute and complete certainty, so here is what I will say with absolute and complete certainty, and that is that your salvation is never based on what you do, but always based on what you believe. It's not based on what you do, it's based on who you trust. Ephesians 2 says, for it is by grace are you saved through faith. It's not by works so no one can boast. You're only saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ and Christ alone. If you are saved by grace, you will stay saved by grace. Therefore, if you're saved by grace and you fall into some sort of sin, you stay saved by grace. Is it possible for people to lose their salvation, this will probably be debated until Christ returns. Again, from my perspective, I do not know how anyone can taste the goodness and the grace and the power and the presence of the risen Christ and ever walk away and totally reject him. I do see how people can doubt, go through a series of questions, fall into different temptations and sins, but I do not understand how anyone who's been truly transformed by the resurrected Christ could ever walk away from his goodness. My bigger fear is this, that there are many people today who have a head knowledge of Christ, but not a heart relationship. They believe in the story, but have never met him personally. And my fear is that there are many people that are gonna miss heaven and eternal life by 18 inches.
Because Jesus said, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, and he'll say, get away from me. I never knew you. If there is any fear or any security, insecurity or any doubt, I would say this to you. Call on Christ. Trust him. Not your good works, not religion, not church membership, but him and him alone. And when you meet him, you will be transformed. You will be forgiven. You will be filled with the Spirit of God. There will be evidence in the way you live because you will display the fruits of the Spirit. You will be different. If you're not any different, maybe you've never met him. Perhaps you believe here, but you've never experienced him here. All of our churches together in prayer. Father, we ask that at this moment, our desire for all of you would increase. As you're praying today, let me just say something that may not have been real obvious. As we've been talking through all of these really great, really important questions, the source of the answers has to be God's word. And the reason so many people don't really know what to believe, base their beliefs on culture, base their beliefs on feelings, and end up living lives very contrary to God's word is because many people simply don't know God's word. If there's anything that you take away from these few weeks, I pray that it's a desire to truly know God through his word, to seek him, to, to make his word a daily priority in your life so that you're not making decisions based on he said, she said, mama thinks, my best friend said, I heard, I read in this magazine, but instead you'd be living life according to God's word. At all of our churches, many of you are going to say, you know what, I really... God's word has not been a priority to me. I am a believer, but it, his word has really not been a priority to me. If that's you today, would you just be real honest and say, God, it hasn't been and I want it to be. Would you lift up your hands right now? Just all of our, all of our churches, if that's you, just lift up your hands. There's more of you right now. Just be real. It's not, his word has not been a priority to me. God, I pray for those who, are, who, who love you and desire more. I pray, God, that we would do life not according to our feelings or by popular opinion or by what we read online, but instead it would be by what your living word says. Give us a desire to know you, to know your truth, and your truth would set us free. Give us, God, the desire, the discipline to make your word a part of our daily lives so that we would forever be transformed. As, as you keep praying today, Many of you, you may sincerely wonder, where do I stand with God? Maybe you've prayed some prayers before, but you, you've had some doubts. Maybe you were really passionate about the things of God before, and now your life is all messed up. Maybe you've done some things wrong, and you feel really guilty. Maybe someone's said, you know, we're not even sure where, where you stand. You don't even know where you stand. This was my story growing up. I just, I hated it. I was in agony. Have I been good enough? Have I been too bad? What does it take? Maybe I need to be more religious. Maybe I need to stop trying to do these bad things. I, just, I missed the point. The point is I could never be good enough. Salvation is not based on what I do. It's based on whom I trust. If I trust in myself, if I trust in religion, I will never, ever be good enough. That's why God so loved the world that he sent his only son, Jesus, who lived the perfect and sinless life and died the most horrible death and God raised him from the dead so that, here's what the Bible says, 
Anyone, doesn't matter what you've done, how bad you've been, how afraid you are, how many doubts accumulate in your mind, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Many of you, you're doubting, you're wondering, you, you don't know. You are here today because God brought you here to call on his name. When you do, when you don't just believe in your head, but when you know him in your heart, you will be transformed, you'll be forever different. That's why you are here today. At all of our churches, those of you who would say, I want to give it all to him, I want to trust him, I want to give my life to Christ, I want him to save me, I want to know him intimately. Today, I give him my whole life. If that's you, would you lift your hands high right now? Just lift them up and say, yes, that's me. I surrender to him. And all of our campuses, as there are those of you saying yes, right over here and right over here and right here as well. Those of you at Church Online, just click right below me. As there are hands going up at all of our, our different churches, you're calling out to him, would you all just pray aloud together with those around you? Pray, Heavenly Father, everybody together, Heavenly Father, I am a sinner and I need a Savior and I'm trusting Jesus. Save me, Jesus. Forgive me. Change my whole life. Make me brand new. My life is no longer my own. I give it all to you. My past, my present, and my future. Thank you for dying for me so I could live for you. Fill me with your spirit so I could serve you forever. Thank you for new life. Now you have mine. In Jesus' name I pray. And everybody took a moment to worship and thank God for his goodness and new life in Christ.